0: Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. A little over a decade ago, I got a uh, pretty interesting uh, offer. Sometimes I've had some really uh, exciting uh, journalistic assignments in my life. And this one was to uh, go up to Seattle and uh, profile a most mysterious band known as the sun City Girls, and I have to admit that I had some trepidation because the Sun City Girls are were were known for not necessarily giving that many chats, and um, sometimes cultivating outright uh, hostility and certainly bafflement in relationship to their audience. They uh, uh, emerged out of the punk scene in the in Arizona in the late. 1970s, but soon began to include all sorts of music and uh, attitudes, beat poetry, jazz, surf music, uh, exotica, African sounds, uh, Middle Eastern sounds into their uh, mix, which often didn't really uh, please the punk rock audiences very much. But the Sun City Girls did not care because they blazed perhaps the most singular anti-authoritarian omnivorously eclectic and consistently surprising and bizarre uh, career in the history of American underground music. Uh, So needless to say, I I was uh, slightly uh, uh, disturbed, but uh, uh, found uh, Alan and Richard Bishop, two of the three members of the band, uh, to be very, very accessible. I only spoke with Charlie, the drummer, uh, a little bit, and Charlie passed away in uh, 2007, and uh, that was when the band Sun City uh, Girls uh, d- dissolved into the nowness of it all. And uh, one of the things about their records, though, that always intrigued me and that I didn't really know what to expect was that they they dipped rather mightily in terms of imagery, uh, na- uh, titles uh, and an overall ambiance into esoterica, into the mysteries, into the occult, witchcraft, uh, a strange, uh, exotic deities, uh, Orientalism—a a sort of mishmash of that ran from uh, exploitation obsessions to clearly very deeply felt. Uh, uh, transmissions of some nebulous occult order that I was never very clear of. I mean, even the titles of their records made it very clear. Things like uh, Torture the Mystics, Valentines from Madahari, and my favorite, 330,003 crossdressers from beyond the Rig Veda. Uh, there was a kind of talismanic force to a lot of their uh, records, and 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 many of the tunes would stretch out into these epic, psychedelic, transformative exotic uh bizarre um, cosmic wanderings and then you know the next track would be a scatological humor piece and you know the next one's a punk rock screamer and it was uh, really quite a mix and i discovered that uh that uh that everyone was interested in uh esoterica but particularly the guitarist richard bishop who's uh, been um, known as sir richard bishop as a solo artist uh for a little over a decade now um, and uh, his uh, amazing amazing guitar work I mean one of my favorite guitarists living or dead partly because of the way in which he combines very many different styles and languages and aesthetic uh, uh, approaches into something that doesn't it doesn't become like a fusion mix like a lot of uh, people who try to draw from different traditions, where it's just this kind of glazed, you know, glump- lumpy oatmeal of, of sameness. Instead, he has a, each track on his records is like a different exotic world that's opening up, and some of them are ferocious, and some of them are sublime, and some of them are sad, and some of them are very funny and uh, devilishly uh, mischievous. Uh, and so his own work is, has this kind of ambiance of esoterica in it. But uh, Richard is also a, uh, a rare book dealer, an antiquarian book dealer, who's been uh, focusing on magic, witchcraft, alchemy, esoterica, a little bit of erotica, some, uh, some uh, ex, uh, uh, you know, exotica materials um, for, uh, for quite some time. And, you know, like a lot of tr- uh, musicians... Richard has been interviewed far more times than he ever wants to think about. Uh, in regards to his music and so I, I wanted to get him on the show and I promised that we'd mostly talk about uh, books which it, to me is, is 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 interesting a topic and one that we've come back to a number of times on uh, expanding mind, talking to uh, esoteric book dealers and collectors you know we talked to uh, Todd Pradham just a couple of months ago and uh, you know an amazing uh, book dealer, great catalog writer and, and uh, Richard is no slouch as well so I'm uh, very uh, happy to invite Richard onto expanding mind. Thanks for joining us. I am here. Oh, good. Yeah. Well, that was, I was just saying the trolls and the gremlins were uh, were getting on us for that. But uh, <laughs> so apologies to yeah, the. I can hear the, you. Uh,
1: I can hear you, and then all of a sudden you cut out, and uh, and it sounded like you were saying some very nice things, and uh, I hope that was the case.
0: Yeah, yeah, I I kept the the insults for later when I had to fill up the dead air. Uh, (laughs) But we'll we'll edit those out. I've got a list of those too, Eric. I got
1: plenty of insults too.
0: (laughs) Excellent. Yeah. So, so as as I was saying, we're we're going to talk about uh, talk about books. I was I had a wonderful uh, time this morning going through uh, your recent uh, listings, and you know, one of the things that I one of the reasons I started to get into Uh, esoteric books and the kind of collector world was, you know, took a while for me to really sort of become a collector of myself, and I still keep it reasonably under control. Uh, But for a long time, you know, back in the 90s, you know, the same... Uh, time when I was ordering Sun City Girls cassettes, you know, I have a a few of those uh, (laughs) rare and cherished items. I was also getting Todd Pradham's catalog and, you know, reading through, just reading the lists of these and descriptions of these books kind of filled my heart with this sense of possibility and strangeness that the world was not as dull and dry as it appears a lot of the time. So there's just something about Esoteric books, in particular, regardless of their content and whether you believe it or you don't believe it, but there's something about the space itself that's very uh, that's very attractive. But I know you, you didn't start mm-hmm. out with the esoteric books as your main antiquarian focus, right?
1: Well, well, not yes and no, actually, not not as a bookseller. I mean, I started out as a collector early um, with esoteric stuff, and this goes back to the. Early to mid '80s, where back then good esoteric books were hard to find, and I just kind of stumbled onto it. I, I had this I had this interest early on in uh, ancient Egypt for whatever reason. Um, so early on, I, I had I had a few books that I picked up, you know, take, you know, the Dover reprints of uh, Budge's Gods of the Egyptians and the Egyptian Book of the Dead, and this was this was probably when I was about 20. And it wasn't until a few years later where, you know, I heard about, you know, the Golden Dawn and, and Aleister Crowley. And and there was a an incident or a, an instance, I guess, in Phoenix early on where there was this group of people uh, who were they were musicians. They were like they played like industrial music and they were, you know, kind of dark at the time and uh in fact, uh me and my friends we we called these people the the darkies i mean and i don't mean any any uh slurs by that but uh because they were mysterious and they were kind of scary at first and it turns out that one of these guys eventually had me over and and gave me a tarot card reading and it was uh it was with the the crowley tarot deck and and it was very dramatic, and he had a copy of the, the little red copy of the Book of the Law next to it. And uh, he gave me this tarot reading, and for some reason it was just, you know, a hundred percent spot on, for whatever reason. And and I asked, and he had the Crowley's Book of Thought there. And I asked him afterwards, to can I look at that? Can I, you know, can I touch that book because it had that cool cover, and and it was battered and. And he finally gave me a copy, and once I started reading that, and you know, because there's plenty of Egyptian references in that, uh, that kind of got me interested. That, along with the fact that the, the tarot reading was was kind of uncanny for a young 22 year old or however old I was at the time, and that is what made me start to get interested in you know something a little more than your basic Egyptology. And it turned out that with this friend of mine and a couple other friends, we started trying to gather, uh, books, you know, Crowley books, Golden Dawn, Israel Rigardi, who lived in Arizona at the time. And, and it was very difficult because we, you know, there obviously wasn't an internet then. Uh, there was one store, one store in, uh, one metaphysical shop in Phoenix, and it was oddly enough called the Metaphysical Shop. And occasionally he would get uh, some Crowley books, but mostly it was Sedona and Crystal, this and that, and uh, some new agey stuff. So it became this contest between our friends to see who could get these books. And it was very difficult, but we eventually formed a study group with the three or four people and, uh, you know, studied the Golden Dawn stuff. And we kind of ventured into the Crowley. It was a little uh, foreign at the time, whereas the Golden Dawn stuff seemed more uh, legitimate. You know, it seemed uh, it was reasonable and it, it, it all made sense, whereas the other stuff was a little further out at that time. And so that's when I first started collecting books or trying to collect books. And I would even sell a book every now and then to maybe get, you know, a better book. That's just how you had to do it back then without really the idea of being a bookseller or anything. But the more you got, the more books you got, uh, you know, the more you wanted. And I remember specifically uh, we eventually started reading some Kenneth Grant, which was, you know, way beyond what we had been reading. And that seemed to be the prize. If we could find these books by Kenneth Grant, then, you know, we're good to go. You know, we're ahead of the curve. And we just couldn't yeah. find him. We just couldn't find him back then. It was very. It was funny.
0: One of my great regrets was that there was a. a I was in uh, uh, Tr- Trinidad. And walking down a you know city street, and there was this crazy old guy who <laughs> tried, to, tried to sell me the night side of, uh, of Eden. this <laughs> Kenneth Grant book, like this from this crazy like Rastafarian looking dude in Trinidad. and he wanted too much for it, and I realized it was going to be a gnarly ha- haggle. And so I just avoided it. But in retrospect, I was, in, I was like, man, you shouldn't pay top dollar for that. <laughs> who cares? You know it's, yeah. it's amazing. That sense of like when you would stumble across, those books. And also just the whole, you know, for younger people listening to this, you know, they they might have never been in a metaphysical bookstore and in the wake of the mm-hmm. counterculture and then sort of new the the spiritual interest and in Eastern wisdom and all that, you know, you'd have these metaphysical bookstores and some went back farther, like the one in in San Francisco fields that I haunted for so long, uh, oh, went back to too. the '30s, yeah. and it was they were almost you know every major cosmopolitan area usually had one, and sometimes they were more New Agey, and sometimes they were more more deep uh, and 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 dark. Uh, but it was really right. like a whole zone, a way of finding your way through the through the '80s. You know, where you'd like find the one shop in the in the town, and, you, and there was a sort of an energy clustered around it. and People would put flyers <laughs> up, and there, again, it was that sense of of possibility uh, in the midst of our kind of banal modern American landscape that was uh, so attractive.
1: Yeah, and and uh, you know that was just how it was then. I remember specifically again in Phoenix, there was. Uh, eventually you just couldn't find any more books. You had to either, uh, you know, you exhausted the the local bookshop, um, and then you had to try to play the catalog game or the get on the phone and, and call dealers cold and say, hey, you got any books by Kenneth Grant? And, you know, they don't know what you're talking about because they weren't metaphysical dealers necessarily. And then finally there was another store that, That was, that we found in Phoenix. It was, uh, it was called the Royal Bookstore. And this guy is the one man operation. His big thing was, uh, was smut, you know, all levels of smut, you know, whether it's sleeves, paperbacks, uh, magazines, uh, of every kink and fetish you could imagine, and, and even some normal smut. Uh, but he would always somehow have a little shelf behind his desk of, of occult books. And so that became our new go-to guy. He said, well, see, this guy, I don't know where he's getting this stuff, but so he became our source for a little while. But then, but then, you know, you get everything they have and, and then that's it. And so, you know, where do you go from there? You know, you just have to study yourself and, and try to start writing your own things. And that was never a good idea with me because I don't really do that. But, uh, it certainly has changed since then. But, uh, at the time, it was very limited for, for me anyway. I mean, I didn't have connections to, I didn't know much about Wiser back then or, uh, uh, you know, never got out of town too often to go look for books, but, uh, uh, that was just the way it was.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I when you were talking about this, I'm remembering places, uh, that, you know, that again, in the, in the eighties, uh, in, in, in Berkeley, there was shambal That's where I probably, I bought my, um, uh, Book of Thoth, and you know, studied uh, dil- diligently, and there was a you know such right. a, a scene around Berkeley uh, that that had right. that kind of stuff. But the place that remind that your your discussion of I can't remember the name of it, the one you the, the smut shop. There was a, a store in, in in New Haven where I was going to college uh, mm-hmm. called Book World. And Book World was right. a 24-hour 24, 24 bookstore, <laughs> <laughs> which already tells you something. And you could go in there right. and there was – a yeah, it was sort of – there there's some normal books. There was a lot of, of smut and then there uh-huh. was like esoterica and psychedelic books and uh, science fiction. So I bought a lot of my science right. fiction there and I bought a lot of the esoterica there. But the, the, the dudes behind the counter, man, they were just from another world. They were like some <laughs> mix of like D&D freak and – you know pervy uncle you know herb or whatever i mean they were really 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 characters and that was part of what it was is that the the occult and the esoterica and this is again you you can't see this now you know the internet really changed what the underground was or is i mean i'm not even sure it exists anymore but then the the connections between esoterica or the occult and these other sort of undergrounds were there was a permeable it was like once you got into the underground mm-hmm. then you would there was all these different ways you could go but the whole thing was still kind of not really available or very visible in in any in, in any obvious way
1: yeah and it's just it's uh but it's just not like that anymore and it's it's uh, the entire the entire thing is different you know whether you're a collector or a or a bookseller You know, it's a it's a changed game. It's going to continue to change. And uh, but at least now we can find books whenever we need them. You know, they're out there.
0: Um, That's just how it is. Yeah, no, that's just how it is. And it's it's so funny when you think about like on a I mean, you could have a lot of, you know, economic discussions about how the book has changed with the internet and the rise of e-readers blah 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 and you know and even just the fact that Mm -hmm. it seems obvious that people aren't reading as many books or at least people have more things competing for their for their attention but it doesn't necessarily mean that the power of the book goes away in fact in some ways it's more obvious you can kind of tell the difference you know, mm-hmm. between a really nice, rare volume and the and the kind of energy it has, particularly if it's a, if it's a, you know has an esoteric or you know magical theme, in my experience, um, mm-hmm. uh, or an imaginative kind of quality, it, the, the the difference between that and all the stuff we're getting through screens is also really clear. So, there there must be have been some kind of rebound uh, around the sort of fetish of the book, if you will. Um, Is that something that you've seen over the the last decade or so? Uh, Yeah,
1: actually, like the last couple decades, especially, you know, especially in the occult publishing and things like that. I mean, I mean, right now there are so many great publishers who are, you know, they're small publishers who are who are creating fantastic books, not just the content, but the quality and the bindings and things like that, which. Um, it's just a nice, refreshing thing. It's, it's, uh, you know, you have, and I'm sure you know a lot of these publishers, you know, like, like Scarlet Imprint and Ouroboros Press and Zonon and Three Hands Press, uh, and, you know, that are doing these finely bound, lovely books. A lot of care has been put into them. Uh, a lot of new scholars, uh, young people writing new original material, which I think has really caught on. And, you know, it's it's kind of amazing because now you have so many books being published and, you know, maybe 75 percent of it's actually good stuff. There's always going to be some some droll in there, you know, that's, you know, not going to be appealing to maybe as many people, but these publishers are are doing their thing. They're getting these books out there. And what they're doing is they're creating a new group of collectors um, for these new books. And, you know, you have these these talismanic books that are supposedly, you know, happening too with these deluxe editions. And that's a whole other uh, conversation that we can have if you want. But uh, so right now, you know, there's not as many... Crappy paperbacks being made there's a there's kind of a renaissance of quality lasting books that people can actually hold on you're not going to find on the internet you know or, or on a screen you know you're not going there's not going to be print on demands of, of any of these things so they're there's they're objects that people want, and there's suddenly a, a quite a demand for them and I'm hoping this continues because. It's making things more interesting for me as a bookseller to get people who are collecting the modern stuff to maybe get a little more interested in some of the older material as well. So I think it's just good for the, for the book trade and for the occult book trade in particular. And so there's a yeah. lot happening that's not going to change, I don't think.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I find I find it very heartening, and and just as you know, someone who's interested in the material, but also just in terms of how people culturally respond to this the, the internet digital world. And I think it's a really that kind of uh, uh, you know refusal or you know uh, you know about face. I think is really key, but part of it really has to do with this core mystery that you that you alluded to this this idea. Of talismanic books, and if you go into the history Mm -hmm. of writing of books of literature in in many cultures, probably all cultures that developed a literary tradition early enough on, there were these elements of magic to the book itself. You know, writing itself Mm -hmm. had had magical power. Uh, Drawing images in books had magical powers. The books themselves became sacred. Whether you're talking about you know, the holy scriptures in, 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 uh, in, you know, the major traditions, or you're talking about magical traditions, or you're talking about, uh, you know, tattoos in, in uh, Thailand. I mean, there's something right. about inscription itself that has a lot about what magic is. Like if you go, what is, what is magic? Whether you want to have an aesthetic answer or a sociological, anthropological answer or a mystical mm-hmm. answer, whatever it is, part of it, seems to involve exactly what's going on with making enjoying uh reading and owning to some extent right. books
1: that's i mean that's true I mean you mentioned uh the old scriptures and just you you know the way I look at it is with the idea of of these mo- this modern version of talismanic books i mean it's certainly not anything new but you know in the old days people Copy books by hand they made manuscripts there's power there's power in letters you know in the in the in the written word especially if it's in your own hand or something like that and not just massively printed and uh over and over but um so that's always been a thing i mean sometimes there's been books in the past that have been considered so powerful that they they've been burned you know by the church or you know because it's oh it's a porthole it's a portal to to the devil or whatever but there's always been this sense of of this sacred uh object in the form of a written book whether it's a manuscript whether it's an, an old handwritten grimoire or whatever so that idea has always been around and what i like about this new phase of occult publishing and when i say when i say new i mean it's it's still, it's, you know, 20, 20 or more years old. Uh, I think the first official, I think, considered the modern uh, rehash of, uh, uh, rehash isn't the greatest word, but the modern thing of talismanic, talismanic books, uh, I think originated with uh, Folger Limited. I think, you know, Robert Ansel Folger in, I think, I think like the early 90s, uh, like maybe 1992, I think. And I think that was uh, an Austin Osmond Spare book, um, Axiomata. And it was two books in The Witch's Sabbath. And it was, <laughs> I just remember I've, I've had a couple over the years and they're beautiful books. And it's set up like an old ace double book. You know, you'd <laughs> read one half of it and then you'd flip it over and uh, read the other half. There's a French word for that. It escapes me right now. Um, but I think that's considered, the first modern talismanic book, at least as it's thought to be. And oddly enough, that came out, I think, the first year where uh, Andrew Chumley's Azuesha came out uh, in a paperback form. And, of course, that was uh, published by Zoanon, if I'm even pronouncing that right. And they went on to become also one of the the major talismanic publishers. And, you know, a lot of the books, including actual hand-drawn talismans um and so that's created this trend that's uh you know if you talk to people about it a lot of people think it's a great thing a lot of people think it's a bunch of crap you know like they don't ah oh, it's just yeah they usually say it's talismanic and you know it's a it's a sales and marketing tool or things like that and you know i certainly understand that that uh viewpoint but you know sometimes you can get one of these books, and you can tell <laughs> you can feel it uh not not in every not in every case, but you know a lot of these books have passed through here through my desk, so to speak, and there are some where you know it's not a lot, but you can hold the book and there's something to it, and there's other times where you know, you get one of these fantastically bound books that come with a talisman, and, and maybe you don't feel anything right away. And, and I think that's because, you know, you have to engage with it. It's like, uh, it's like, uh, you know, like a magic lamp. I mean, the genie's not going to come out unless you rub the bottle or whatever. You know, it's, uh, you have to, you have to engage yourself with this, and maybe something will happen. But like I said, there's so many publishers doing it now and it's it's become a thing so to speak and i don't think it's going away and in fact i hope it i hope it doesn't because i think it sets a interesting uh precedent for future book publishing not just not just uh, occult books but you know any type of book compared to what you can get now if you go down to your local uh amazon shop or whatever you know your barnes and noble you know, it's not going to be the same kind of thing, but there is the school of people who think that maybe a lot of this, like I said, is, is more of a, a sales pitch. You know, like, uh, they don't, maybe they don't believe that these books are intended to be talismans or, or, uh, spirit houses or however you want to look at it. And it's because a lot of the publishers won't really say what, you know what the process is and i i can respect that as well but and over over the years there's only been a few books that i've handled where immediately it's like okay i'm going to set this down for a second because you know you just can tell that there's something going on here and the first one i remember is uh, i was selling this book for a, a client back in the '90s, and it was a copy of uh, oddly enough, it was a copy of the Book of Thoth by uh, Crowley, but it was the the one that came out in 1944, bound in this, bound by the OTO, and just this beautiful binding and signed signed and numbered by Uncle Al himself, so to speak. When I was holding this book, the, the, the thing was just it was it was alive. And I don't think it was alive because it had Crowley's signature or anything like that, because I've handled other books with his signature, and it looks like holding a dead fish. But this one, <laughs> this one just you could tell it had been used in a temple or in some ritual sense. It was just something about not just the, the content, it was just the feel of the book. there was something in the book. There was no doubt about it in my mind. And that's always stuck with me. And this was before I had heard anything about the idea of talismanic books. Uh, In fact, this is all pretty recent to me within the last several years. But the only time it's happened since then is with a a more modern book, came out a couple, three years ago, maybe a little longer. uh, It's called The Scorpion God. Now, any collector of... Uh, of modern occult books you probably knows about Mark Allen Smith and his primal craft and his tr- 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 trident of witchcraft. And, uh, you know, this can be some interesting subject matter. But I had one of these deluxe editions from him. In fact, I had the first three. It was a trilogy. I had the Queen of Hell and then the Red King and the Scorpion God. And I read the first two without a doubt, in the deluxe editions. And I had no no problems, you know, uh, wasn't really into the material going into it as much, because. but I have to, you know, if I'm going to sell these. I have to know what the hell they're about. And so I went through them without any problems. The The information kind of resonated a little bit with me. It took me a little while to get through the first two, but then I had the, the third one, the Scorpion God. And I'll tell you, when I started trying to read that, I it almost, it's going to sound crazy, but it almost just wouldn't let me open the book. It's just like, no, not yet. You're not, this one, this one, you just don't open it, you know? And I kind of was like that. And it was like, well, that's interesting. But then I found a trade edition uh, of the same book, had no problem with it. So it was something about that particular copy that, interested me because of that and so i started doing a little more research on on mark alan smith who's the author and you know he's one of the few guys that really will tell you exactly what he does to to make his books talismanic and it's it's quite detailed and i think that's kind of cool you know he'll he'll say well you know all the ink that we use and all the pens and, and all the tools, they're all ritually consecrated. The ink I use to sign the deluxe editions are mixed with my own blood and ritual possession. And, and just he'll just go down the list. And I thought, well, you know, if that's true, you know, he's just putting it all out there. And because I had one experience with only one copy of his books, I'm going to say he's a man of his word because I could tell there was something going on.
0: But you know it's so funny when it, when i'm hearing that- about this what's what's so strange about it is, and you pointed out yourself is that we can simultane you can simultaneously talk about this as this recovery renewal of a certain ancient way of approaching material inscription and in books and and charging exactly. it with ritual energy and and turning them into talismans and at the same time you can go Yeah, it's actually it's a good gimmick, you know. It's a good, uh, you know, these these they, you know, when you go to these these um, publishers you're talking about, you know, you go and there's like multiple editions, like multiple fine editions, like there's the really expensive one, and then you're like, all right, do I want that (laughs) that extra juju, or am I just gonna you know sit on the two hundred dollar copy, which is just. Really awesome, you know, and and what's funny is that when you start thinking about like all that detail that you're describing, where where these the the incredible amount of care and detail and decisions and decisiveness and craft and intention that are going to all of these elements, it mirrors a, a much larger kind of desire that you see all over the hipster world to, to put it in crude, crude terms, which is, you know, for the bespoke, the fetish, the artisanal, the, the handcrafted, the local. And it's, it's part of this broader desire for something really tangible and not industrial and not digital. Um, it's almost like the, it's like the esoteric parallel of these other kinds of worlds. So it's like similar, but it's also still incredibly you know, powerful and bizarre for most people thinking about the idea that a book could have this kind of, of, of power.
1: Yeah. I mean, I didn't, I didn't think about that when you, when you related it to, you know, hipster and the boutique, this, and the artisan on that. Uh, that's actually quite funny since I'm in Portland, because this town's full of that. Um, yeah. But yeah, I do agree. I mean, it, it, it is easy to, to just kind of brush all this off as, as a lot of Fluff or a lot of BS, unless you've actually had an experience with that. And uh, and I'm not saying that that Mark's books are any better than 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 uh, Peters and Alchistasis from Scarlet Imprint or Ben Fernie's at Society of Esoteric Endeavor or any of these others. Uh, it's just that I think it's interesting that he actually will come out and say this is what, this is what I do. And this is how I do it. And uh, whereas, you know, maybe some other publishers, they'll hint at it. And uh, maybe we'll keep some secrets to themselves, which I think is is probably a good idea as well. So maybe they don't get judged in any sense that, well, this guy is making ink with his own blood. I don't want to have anything to do with this. Uh, This just (laughs) sounds dark. And, uh, And sure it is. Who cares if it's light or dark? I mean, it's uh, it's gray at the best. And, and all these books have their have their little dark side. I mean, it's part of the charm, you know, but but you also mentioned that. Yeah, there's there's this edition. Then there's that edition, uh, the, the deluxe edition, the super deluxe edition, the, you know, the, the book that will fly if you pay for it. <laughs> uh, it's uh, there's so many options now. And and I'm not against any of it because I'm I'm a bookseller. I like to get these books. I like to I like to know about them. I have to know about them. If people are going to ask me about them. So it's, it's a fascinating thing, and it's, uh, like I said, I don't think it's going to change. I think it's going to just get better and better in a lot of ways. But, you know, at the same time, there's still a lot of stuff that comes out that's published that just seems to be dark for dark's sake, you know, uh, to where, you know, extra – Extra special Luciferian Satanism, or this and that, uh, the left hand path, way left hand. I mean, it's just like uh, this one's darker than the last one you read. So you want this one, and look at the cover on this; it's beautiful. And so there's just so much going on that you know you can only take so much. And, and but there are some collectors who will. I, I want it all. I got to have this. I got to have that. I have to, have to have every edition, or I just have to have the exact the only deluxe edition or the super talismanic uh, edition. So it's kind of an interesting time to be involved uh, as a bookseller. I, I don't call myself a collector anymore because I don't really – I can't collect because I'm a bookseller. If I collect, I won't have anything to sell. So my current inventory at any given time is my temporary collection and it works okay because i can still spend time with these books before they move on to where they're supposed to go but uh yeah it's just a, it's just a fascinating field right now and i don't i don't think uh i don't think it's going to go away anytime soon and it's uh you know regardless of the internet you know people are making good books that are going to last a long time and some of them might have a little special power to them so yeah <laughs>
0: Well, what I, what I like about what you're saying is, is the, that it, it also tells me something about how you approach the whole question of, of magic or mysticism or the sort of otherworldliness, you know, you, where, where it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's to, to kind of, you know, buy the story. Uh, you know, this guy's version and that version is kind, of a, is kind of a sucker's game. But on the other side, there are your experiences and, and there's just peculiar things that happen. And those peculiarities kind of lead, lead you further on. And then so for me, I mean, not to try to move it into music, but for me, you know, your Sun City Girls cassettes back in the day were like that. I was like, who made this? What world does right. this come from? You know what were what mind states were behind the creation of this incendiary, bizarre, exotic item that I'm getting just in this humble cassette case with a Xerox cover, and so I think that we, you know, we leave sort of objects or we create objects that then go out and have their own kind of enchanted relationships with other people, and it's really part of the magic of books is this these these exchanges or transmissions you can get. Opening a book to any page and it says just what you want, like a tarot deck is a book. A tarot deck yeah. is an unbound book that you read in different orders, and that readings, can, those readings can be experientially incredibly profound. Hmm. Well, it's
1: an interesting segue there. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't have to be books. It can be anything. It could be, it could be a piece of music. It could, it could be, uh, could be a statue. You just never know. The ideas to like in relation to those cassettes you mentioned, which uh, I haven't listened to in, in many years, uh, I can't, can't even remember the, the crazy stuff that's on half of those. But it's the same idea, you know. This is something that's produced. It's gonna have a. It's gonna have an effect on somebody. It'll have different effect on different people. You Get it out there. People will get it somehow, and then. Then it's in their court, you know, then, then they react and they engage with it. It's the same thing with a book. Um, but it's not going to do anything unless you do engage with it. So in the case of the book, you have, if it's a, if it's a deluxe and talismanic book, whatever, you have to work with it. You have to absorb it. You have to, again, you have to engage with it. Otherwise, it's just going to, in most cases, just going to sit there. It's not going to do anything. And uh, that's fine with a lot of people. Same thing with uh, with a record or a cassette or, a, or whatever it is, even a CD. Um, if you don't listen to it, you don't engage with it, it's just going to sit there. There's nothing to it otherwise. So that's just how it is. And uh, I'm glad that you have some of those cassettes because I wish I had some back. I could probably sell them for a lot of money.
0: (laughs) Yeah, uh, that's true. You know, I wanted to ask you about another another uh, uh, set of materials on your on your site, which is in a way the opposite direction of, of talismanic, you know, fine quality books, which is the the ephemera. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, as I mentioned, like one of the things that uh, marked uh, Sun City Girls records and, and the videos and all the stuff you did is this real love of intense imagery, of exotic imagery, mm-hmm. of sort of erotica, of myst- mysticism, occultism, devils, uh, strange gods, uh, tribal fetishes, et cetera, et cetera. That was always very much a part of the vibe. And I mm-hmm. see, you know, in a way you're carrying that that forward with – um, some really wonderful things, including all of these great um, vintage sheet music collections that have these really wonderful masonic uh, buddhist weird uh, egypto fantasy uh, covers so I, i'd like to hear, hear a little bit about what, what what you like about this imagery how this imagery you know seems like a valuable thing to to collect and think about because it's a little bit less obvious than you know fine antiquarian books or modern well-produced books
1: yeah i mean at the same time it, there's there's certainly a similarity there's a there's a relationship i mean for for me especially you mentioned the sheet music I used to have quite a quite a collection of of vintage sheet music and i actually i actually uh dealt in it for a while um, but I didn't care about the music because these are all songs from the early nineteen hundreds that you know I don't read music uh but it was the graphic. It was the imagery, and, uh, you know, it's always been that way for me. You know, if you're selling selling a record, you know, the better the cover, the more chance you're going to sell it. But these old sheet music images are an interesting look at the time that they were published, because most of the stuff I had or have is from the 1890s to the 1920s where, you know, in there you had the Egyptian revival happening. So there was this huge Oriental Egyptian thing going on, not just in sheet music. It was going on in packaging. It was going on everywhere. And some of those images have just always attracted me because it's just, wow, look at this. Sure, it's Orientalism. Sure, you know, it's not going to be approved of by, by this person or that person or this group or that person, much like, At the same time, during that same period, there was all this black stereotype stuff that was coming out in sheet music and in packaging and everything else like that. And that's just a symbol of what was going on at that time. It's not not good, it's not bad, but it's real and it's there. So there's collectibles for that, too. But I was always attracted to the Oriental stuff. Uh, You know, having been accused of being an Orientalist over the years, from record albums and things like that. But I don't, I've do never cared about that. I like the art. And so I wanted to collect that and preserve it and then eventually sell it. And, and a lot of the things that came on our record albums or in our little ephemeral releases that we would do every now and then, it just, it's from our archive. We have tons of this stuff that, you know, we know how to market things. You know, if if you want to put, if you want to sell a record, you know, you're going to sell it a little more quickly if you put a naked woman on the cover. I mean, that's just how it is. Or some, or, or you know, a classic image of, of devils or demons. You know, Uh, it has to be something that people are going to go to. They have to see it. Otherwise, again, it's like a book that you never open. Um, So these images that I decided to sell a little bit you know, I think they're, I think they're just interesting art pieces, regardless of what they meant when they came out. And some of these are almost a hundred years old or, or older than a hundred years old. So it's stuff that wasn't meant to last to begin with. So it's just a way of preserving specific art forms and, and paper. And my job now is to get it to the right hands. If anybody wants it, I, I recommend people look at the stuff and, uh, and the more you see of it, the more you realize how much there actually was, th- then it just becomes more amazing because there are thousands and thousands of things like this. So that's all there is to it. There's nothing, there's nothing more to it than that, really.
0: Well, one of the things I like about that material, I mean, I'm also kind of a fan of, of Orientalism as an art, Movement and as a aesthetic and and as a, a kind of record of a, a very romantic and in some ways misguided but still very rich encounter between europe and in the middle east you know pre- predominantly uh, but what is one of the things I like about it is, this again it's this it 's this atmosphere it 's this intangible you know, like a wonderful uh, fantasy story from Lord Dunsany or like a strange uh, esoteric book or a scholar's book or something. Sometimes just the right object, you know, opens up this sort of enchantment, this sense of um, imagination. And I think that, that, as I, as I said at the beginning of the show, that this is also applies to a lot of your music in the sense that, mm-hmm. you know, partly because you're using... Middle Eastern scales, or whatever, you're not playing in a standard, uh, you know, blues scale or whatever that has a kind of exotic equality. But more than that, a lot of your work seems to really. You invest a lot in creating an aesthetic atmosphere that has that sense. Maybe it's a little bit uh, not appropriate on the one hand, but on the other <laughs> hand, it's full of this kind of enchantment that just going through the moves of the scale is not going to create. There's a kind of in- investment in an invoking sense, uh, a, an atmospheric mm-hmm. sense that I also hear that you do, you're doing in, in your music.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, and I think you know, even going back 20 or more years, I think I've always done that. And it's but especially when I'm playing solo, it's just a guitar and I'm not singing. So there it, it's instrumental. So there's no words to to create a story or anything like that. So it has to be uh in the, as you say atmospheric. It has to uh create a sense of a a place or a sense of feeling uh, because there's no words to, uh, to indicate that for the listener. And it also helps me when I do that because, and I do it consciously. I mean, I do want to create that, that feeling, that atmosphere, whether I'm playing a, a Middle Eastern typed song or a, or a Raga, a version of a Raga or an interpretation you know that's the idea because that's that's what got me interested in the music into that type of music anyway so if i if i listen to a a raga you know recorded whenever you know it's the same thing that that puts me in a place that certainly puts me in a mindset and that's i want to do the same thing when i do that it's not going to be traditional in the sense of following any rules of raga or or proper scales. I mean, I don't know anything about scales, you know, and I'm not really conscious of that when I'm, when I'm playing. I kind of know what notes work and what don't, but I don't know if it's a Mixolodeon or a Nickelodeon scale. I don't know any of this stuff. Um, but the idea is the same. It's like you want to put the listener in a place where they can, they can create their own story or their own visuals by just listening to what's going on in the room. Or on record and uh, and that's kind of a mystical little approach you know it's uh I'm not trying to work any magic or anything like that, but uh, sometimes that happens you know sometimes things will happen and and a lot of it for me is based on you know it's improvising I'm not really you know doing the same kind of exact thing every time, and that's because. You know, when I do that, especially playing live, it depends on the room. It depends on the energy in the room and who's in the room, the type of room, and, and uh, how many cigarettes I have left. I mean, anything could factor into uh, to the atmosphere of, of what I'm trying to do. So it's, uh, it's kind of a fun game.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it comes, it comes through. Uh, I mean, I was thinking a lot about improvisation <laughs> when, you were, when you were talking. Mm-hmm.
1: And then, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, you're,
0: you're about uh, to go on a tour, right? I am going on
1: tour. Uh, I'm going to have to close down the website for about a month, the book website. Um, in the entire month of May, I'll be out touring the States and uh, playing some shows and, of course, looking for books on every opportunity. And I'm looking forward to that because I haven't done that in a couple of years. Uh, the last two years, I've been completely focused on on selling books and, and I will continue to, to do that. But in order for me to do a tour, you know, I can't, I'm a one-man operation on both fronts. So, um, I'll have to put the books on hold and then, you know, come back with hopefully a bunch of new arrivals. But at the same time, I'm going to really be concentrating on the music, which I haven't done for a while. And I'm certainly looking forward to that, and I'm hoping I run into you uh, maybe in the Bay Area.
0: Yeah, yeah, I might be here. I might be down in in L.A. the, the, the Thursday you're playing. So one, one way or the other, uh, I'll definitely be able to – uh, to to see you play, which is always a always an enchantment. Maybe we can sneak off and get some books when you when you go uh, uh, book shopping. We got just got a minute here to sort of say the last thing. What do you what are you looking for? What is it that, that is it just something you didn't hadn't seen before? Do you have a big list that you want to fill? Is, do you have a sense of what your audience is?
1: Well, the first thing I'm looking for is an actual open bookstore that has good books, and those are hard to find now. So yeah. I don't really go looking unless it's a, a cult store. I know what to look for, but if it's a I want to go to an antiquarian store that has old books that are good, whether they're a cult or not, and I want to see stuff that I haven't seen, that I can't see online, and it's becoming harder and harder, uh, but that's what I want to do. I don't want to go in every just-used bookstore, because half the time it's a waste of time.
0: So yeah.
1: I'm pretty particular.
0: <laughs> well, it's good, and it comes through uh, the, the, the website when people, people want to check it out. Of course, go to uh, Richard bishopbookseller.com and you can uh, uh, plunge through the wares we've got to wrap it up there so Richard thanks so much for joining us on, on Expanding Mind
1: thanks Eric for having me and uh, hope to see you soon
0: yeah yeah good luck with your tour okay. uh, for me and all you out there keep your minds open